you're listening to Cinepunked. This episode, Gaslight. I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson. This episode features a recording of one of our live panel discussions held after a screening of the 1940 Thorold Dickinson film version of Gaslight, known in the United States as Angel Street, itself based on the 1938 play by Patrick Hamilton. Now, Hamilton's story is a Victorian thriller in which the lady of the house is led to question her own state of mind by a controlling husband. The chilling British adaptation of 1940 isn't as well known as the American adaptation of 1944, which features Ingrid Bergman and Angela Lansbury among the cast, but together they helped cement the term in the popular consciousness. In 2018, the Oxford Dictionary has Gaslight as one of their words of the year, alongside Me Too and Fake News, used both in terms of domestic and the political spheres. Often misunderstood, to gaslight is to manipulate someone by psychological means into doubting their own sanity. Our conversation took the film as a starting point, and the conversation begins with a discussion about the relationships within the film before moving into global politics. Yes, this episode does include a Trump discussion, and the realities of gaslight and domestic abuse. Fair warning to listeners, this episode at times is a difficult listen. We felt that it was too important, and so we have left the bulk of the episode as recorded without it simply for clarity. Because it's a live recording, the audio levels do vary somewhat. If you are affected by any of the issues raised, please do speak to someone. There are people and organisations willing to help. I was joined by my cinepunk colleague, Dr. Rachel Kelly, and returning to the fold is writer, activist and member of the Belfast Feminist Network, Liz Nelson. Ben Simpson was in the control booth and recorded the sound. As we commence, I'm just setting up the scene for the audience. Now, this is basically a follow-up to a discussion we had last year after the Belfast Film Festival based around Me Too and Time's Up. Um, so that's kind of where the gaslighting thing comes into it. Uh, we are going to talk a bit about the film. We're also going to talk a bit about real-life gaslighting experiences and sort of what that's like. Um, potentially, it's a sensitive area. Um, so... For those of you who've been following the news recently, there may be some things that come up. Because we're recording this for legal reasons, uh, I'm going to prefix this with we may have to be very clear and stop the recording at some point or sort of clarify things before we can continue with it because a lot of the things that are being said in the press uh, owing to libel laws, etc., etc., are alleged. Uh, we can't prove them at this point, uh, so I have to be very, very clear about that one. Um, and if you, talk, if you happen to be involved and you want to talk about your own personal experiences, if that's something that someone feels moved to do, um, just be very clear about that one as well, that there are certain legal boundaries that we have to follow, um, so it's best off that you don't name names, uh, but by all means, if, if, you, if anyone feels that way. We've also got some support materials just over on the table in the back. Uh, there's some leaflets for some organisations who can help out if anyone is affected by any of the issues that come up today, either through the film or through the discussion. All good with that? Sorry for the long preamble, but for legal reasons, we kind of have to do it. Um, so, uh, where should we start with this one? Yeah. Mm. Gaslight. Gaslight, um, yeah. As a film. So, did you understand where the concept came from before? Yeah, no, I've been familiar with the term for, for quite some... I mean, it's actually an, a term that is a lot older than people necessarily think. You know, obviously, it was um, one of 2018's words of the year. Um, but it, it goes back... Um, gosh, it, I think the most... The earliest recorded use of it in print is in the in the early 1960s, um, and it's a direct reference to the play that the this 1940 film is based upon, and it's being used in that very same sense, that sense of um, deliberately trying to cause somebody to question their own reality for your own ends, um, not necessarily in a romantic context. I think that's something that that you know, it tends to come out around about the same sort of time, but um, it's it's clear that this is a term that's starting to gain cultural currency a lot further back than um, it's been a buzzword. Uh, well, the play's in 1938, so Patrick Hamilton uh, wrote this. He also wrote Rope, which some of you may know the Hitchcock film. Yeah. Um, I, I first discovered this through Rope, uh, which I adore as a film. And oh, I adore as a play, it's just amazing. Came to Gaslight, which was something, you know, as a teenager finding this, it's just like, ooh, there's another one. Great. Um, but the, so the play comes, then they, uh, it gets released in the States as Angel Street, 
So uh, talking to some American friends this week, they know as Angel Street didn't have a clue what it was as, as this. Um, it then becomes uh, the British film in 1940, and then the Americans adapt it in 1944, and that's the version that most people, I think, are probably familiar with, because this one essentially was hidden for the next 70 years. Well, MGM tried to have this as the prince destroyed when they bought the rights to it. Completely, They tried yeah. to bury it, and thank goodness they didn't succeed. I, there's a lot of things I like about the 1944 version. I think we've talked about this a wee bit. There are a lot of things I like about the 1944 version, but in terms of sheer chilling malevolence um this 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 is the one i mean he is genuinely unsettling and it only gets worse when you watch it again because you're primed to look for how awful he is and it's genuinely you know, the feeling of claustrophobia i was really quite panicky watching her just curl into herself I mean, that, that look on her face when when she's in the the bakery and she realises he's behind her, and her face just changes. It's genuinely upsetting to watch. I sort of wrote down there, watching it this time, somnambulism. You know, she's she's almost like a sleepwalker at that point. It's 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 like if you watch Darren Brown and he's programmed somebody, and at that point it's the whole it's the touch in the arm, and it's like yes, you are now going to do the things that you are meant to do. I mean, that is the control that he has got at this point. Um, Liz, hi. <laughs> Thoughts on the film? I, same as Rachel, I found it incredibly unsettling to watch. And I think that when you go into it, I hadn't seen this version, but obviously knowing what was going to happen was, you're kind of on tenterhooks from the very beginning, going, right, how is this guy going to gonna get into her the way that you know that he's going to? Um, but the thing that I think was particularly terrifying for me, um, and I, I was saying to, to Rachel before, was um, it's the time period. So... You could watch something, that, in, that exact same story happening now, right? And it would obviously be awful and still abusive. But women now have a way out. Um, we have resources. There are laws. There are norms. She didn't have that. For hundreds, thousands of years, um, women didn't have that. And that was particularly galling for me to watch. And, and knowing that... Yes, this is a this is a film, but that there there are women that that would have happened to, who wouldn't have been saved, who would have been sent to an asylum and lived out all of their days being told that they're a raving man and you know living in these horrible circumstances. So that for me added another layer onto it. Is we know such more, so much more now um, that they that they didn't know, and that's horrible, horrifying. I think. Not not even. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Of course, that we have resources now that she wouldn't have had, but we were talking about sort of a very specific cultural um, time period um, around the world. There are many societies. In fact, we were just talking about um, a fascinating oh, film. I'm um, not a witch. I am not a witch. Yeah, we, uh, the other day where women are uh, today being accused of witchcraft and sent, they have no recourse, no legal recourse whatsoever. The accusation is enough and they are packed off to so-called witch camps for the rest of their lives, where they're basically farmed out and used as, as slave labor. Um, and it's just accepted practice that once this happens, you just, that's your life. Um, so yeah, I mean, this, this sort of, the, the idea that the word of a man in this case, and I know I don't, I kind of don't want to confine this to a, a, a male violence on women kind of discussion. No, but in the context of I this film and this era, this, this film, that's entirely appropriate. Yeah, um, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the word of a man has the capacity to destroy a woman's life even today. Um, and it's about resources and it's about not having access to the power to push back, which is really chilling. I think there's something as well there about mental health issues. I mean, which is what this is a progenitor for. I mean, even today, um, the whole concept of somebody having a mental health struggle, it can still be used as a weapon against them, whether they're male, female, or anything else. And I guess, again, this is me, me talking from first-hand experience as well, is that when you come out and you, you have an issue, is that sometimes they will use that as a tool. And it's a great thing to do. I mean, the whole idea about gaslighting is that they are deliberately, slowly, methodically attempting to undermine your sanity, but also your credibility. And once your credibility is called into question, you know, then great, you can do whatever the hell you want. Um, 
and, and to kind of not not to kind of go off completely from the films at this point, but you know, Trump is a really good example of this. We've all kind of talked about this in the recent weeks. The way that he basically gaslights a nation. Well, we're now in post-truth, aren't we? Alternative, alternative facts. Yes, that, that was the most that the most brilliant stroke of gaslighting ever. I mean, it's as if he watched this and was like, "How do I gaslight people? I'm gonna do. I'm gonna watch this film and then I'm gonna bring it into the 21st century. Fake news. It is now completely impossible, nearly, to agree truth with somebody that that you disagree with. Um, I, I literally, I'm sure that you all have this, but I've have this guy who's friends with my husband on Facebook from my hometown in Wisconsin, and he's he's one of those people where you could put on an article about anything, anything, it doesn't matter. His first thing, he comes at BS, fake news, everything. And it's, it's absolutely impossible to speak to somebody like that where you cannot agree any kind of objective reality. Like, how do you speak to somebody like that? How do you bring them around to anything? How do you agree that those chairs over there are red? Nah, fake news. I mean, how, what? How, what, are, what are you supposed to do with that? There's, there is no kinder to that. <laughs> Sorry, I know. That's, <laughs> you know like, how do I fix this? It's, it's just the, 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 the you, that shuts down debate. Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the essence of what this is. I mean, if, if you are going to just invert reality to fit your own whim, there is no counter to it, and that's what's so terrifying. Um, that. We can have video evidence of politicians um, saying a thing or doing a thing, and then you call them on it, and they go, I never did the thing. And you go, well, you did do the thing. Here's video evidence of the thing that we said you did. News media is so biased. There's no impartiality anymore. You guys are just out to get me. And it's, it's exactly what he does in this film. Um, that, that sort of, you, you turn it around and you make it the other person's fault. You know, when she, when he, she calls him on, um, why didn't you let me see my cousin? The first thing is, well, why did you write to him? I told you not to. That's not answering the question. That's not addressing the wrongdoing in any way, shape, or form. That's immediately, it's classic abusive behavior, turning it around, and it's immediately your fault. And that's what's happening um, with, with the news, with people in the position to actually control the message, turning it around and going, you guys, it's your fault. You're so biased. You never, you never report impartially. Well, see, this is where you've got the, the power of actually being able to craft your own evidence as well, which... In a gaslighting context, um, you can't. Now, we, we were talking before this about Gone Girl, which I know isn't strictly a gaslighting film, but it ties in with this stuff. And one of the things that she does is, I mean, she crafts an entirely fictionalised account about what's going on in order to undermine the credibility of her husband. You know, so if you've got that sort of situation, I mean, then you kind of go, well, it's fake news, but it's like, well, the, the, here's the evidence. And I think partly our inclination in that sort of context is to believe, uh, you either believe the evidence is there, or there's also this temptation now to sort of say, well, anytime it's a woman making an accusation, let's believe that automatically. With, you know, not to get into a sexist element of it, but that is sort of the danger that we fall into as well, is that you, the credibility and where it lies and how you believe that, you know, it, it, it's an, an odd... Yeah, you, you know, I, I, I have lots of issues with Gone Girl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of issues, my primary one being that it's one of the key strategies used to silence victims of domestic abuse. Is, oh, what if they were making it up all along? Um, I, I really have a lot of issues with Gone Girl. Um, I think it's really important to talk about it in terms of the female partner perpetuating the abuse on the male partner, certainly, but I think that's a really bad example. <laughs> No, but in terms of crafting evidence, it's good. Uh, yeah. I mean, a, be a better example is The Girl on the Train. Oh, in terms of contemporary yeah. films. Has anyone seen that? Yeah, okay. Who hasn't seen it? Who hasn't seen it and wants to see it before I spoil any of no, it? No, let's not spoil it because it's too <laughs> no, good. You really yeah, need to really. see it and, and read it as well. I finished yeah. that book literally in one night. And it was a very long, sleepless night because I managed to pick the worst hotel in Dublin to stay in for a conference down there. Um, and literally there were people whooping and screaming in the halls the entire night. So I was really glad to have this book because it was fantastic and you should definitely read it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not getting any commission for it, I promise. Yeah, you have an issue with stories. Like, I mean, one of the things that, 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 that there's a trend at the moment within um, some of these films and some of the, the novels that are coming about unreliable narrators. And essentially, that's what you're doing. You're undermining the credibility of anyone's story, anyone's truth. And that's where gaslighting works. 
uh, at yeah, its best. I mean, it's human beings are fundamentally unreliable witnesses anyway. You know that that's why gaslighting works. Um, I don't really have anywhere I'm going with this. I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of film, um, there is a history of, of this sort of behaviour on screen as well. It goes beyond, I mean, we, we sort of think gaslight, gaslight, to um, back for more. Uh, and then there was nothing. You weren't crazy enough the first time. <laughs> uh, then they progressed to electricity, you know, the, the light bulbs folding 40 watts. Um, so uh, there, there is a history of this on screen as well. Um, there's a, I, I still all research with Hammer films, and there's a 1948 film called Man in Black, and its entire narrative is um, about a girl who uh, is, is, is basically her father is, dies, and her she's gradually meant to uh, go mad during it. She's being deliberately kind of steered into madness. Um, and that's a plot line that kind of continues uh, being used throughout the 50s and 60s. Clouseau's The Diabolique in 1955 basically sets us up this idea of um, getting a woman that's sender and saying, let's try and get something off her, usually property, you know, because let's be honest, at this point, we still think men are the ones that are meant to have everything. So like in this, it's her money that gets in things. Um, and it's to undermine that, take that stuff back. And then Hammer in particular uh, basically did a whole series of what they called women in peril films. So basically you've got your female protagonist um, and she is basically sent to the, the madhouse through whatever systematic scheme. Um, and that was kind of, the, that's the whole draw of the films is, is that kind of... There's the woman in white, of course, as well. There is, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's the, the whole... Never made any sense to me. Anybody not know the plot of women in, the woman in white? Why didn't he just kill her? I don't... I, I get that there's no story if he did, but why didn't he just... That would have been so much simpler. Anyway. There's a lot of Hitchcock films as well play on this, the sort of gradual madness. You know, if you think about Joan Fontaine and Rebecca, kind of gradually losing the, the will to, to do anything and questioning your own sense of perception. Vertigo? Reality. Vertigo, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's false memories that are implanted, the false perceptions of what's actually going on and, and, and a whole other thing. What's nice about this is that we see what's going on right from the start. Yeah, I think it's it, um, It's one of the things that I kind of slightly like better about 1944 um, is that it's, a, it's left that bit more ambiguous. So we're genuinely with Ingrid Bergman where she's, she doesn't really understand what's going on and because we... You sort of know what's going on. We all know what he's doing. Uh, you know, we're, we're sort of going, knowing for Berkman, you're not actually crazy. But watching it the first time, it's possible to watch it and go, hang on, is she? Is she losing her mind? Um, you know, I, 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 I just that said, there's just something so unbelievably menacing about him every time he's on the screen. Paul Mallon is genuinely terrifying. He's enjoying what he's doing. It's the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> it's the evil mustache. Just a thought. <laughs> Shorthand for villain. Mustache and a foreign accent. It's he even does the cackle, doesn't he? He's, yeah, he's the, the archetype of the horrifying man <laughs> on screen. So I, I am going to take a leap here. Because you, you guys know that I'm, I'm not the film person, right? But I was thinking about this earlier. Um, and rather than thinking about a very specific film that was about gaslighting or where gaslighting happened, I was kind of thinking about, um, kind of following on from our Me Too conversation the last time, about um, romantic comedies and romantic films as gaslighting. Okay. Bear with me, okay? No, no, I'm with you already. Uh -huh. Is this love actually already? <laughs> oh, well, that's a good example, though. Romantic comedies over decades as gaslighting of, of generations, several generations of women into thinking that certain things that play out on screen are what romance look like. Okay, so I'm talking John Cusack with the boombox, and that guy, like, what was that, a year or two ago, who was like, I'm going to play piano in this oh, square yeah, yeah. until my girlfriend takes me back, and people were finally like, dude, that's stalking. Yeah. No. Um, Love he Actually. I was genuinely and, surprised to find yeah. that people thought that was unhealthy behavior. Uh -huh. and, why, and why shouldn't he be surprised when every single movie that we've seen since Pretty in Freaking Pink has taught him that that is an appropriate way to behave, that it's persistence, it's not taking no for an answer. Has anybody seen Crazy, Crazy Stupid Love? Is that the one with Ryan Gosling and he's got his shirt off all the time? Don't ask that, me why. That, That's how I remember that, that film. doesn't narrow it down. No. Doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. That's not important, actually. But... I, so I loved that movie the first time I watched it, right? And I rewatched it recently, and I was utterly horrified. 
the storyline about um, the the babysitter lusting after sorry my spoiler alert um, lusting after the father and then it was the father's then son who is taking this as um, inspiration so right I'm explaining this badly okay so you've got the father and the son and in between is the babysitter and the babysitter wants the father and the son wants the babysitter now the babysitter is a good 10 years older than this guy I mean he's maybe 12 I don't know 13 and he takes this trope of not taking no for an answer to pretty disgusting levels um, to the point where at the end, in some sort of swing round of, you know, the babysitter saying, no, no, like, dude, you're 12 and I'm 17 and this is gross. At the end, she takes a picture that she took of herself for the father, which that's a whole different story, and gives it to this guy as like, oh, you're so cute. You didn't stop bothering me and asking me out and humiliating me in front of my entire school. So obviously that means that you love me and we're meant to be together. So when you're old enough, let's hook up. What? Am I allowed to swear? Yes, of course. What the fuck? <laughs> like recent, I don't know, 2000. It's the last decade anyway. Yeah. Crazy stupid. Recently. I haven't seen it. I'm not going to see it. But <laughs> wow. it's, it's horrifying. So, this is what I mean by gaslighting an entire generation of women. This, it's telling us Disney films as well, right? Meet a guy. He's pretty. You get married. Everything's wonderful. No. It's telling us that the way that men behave in these movies is acceptable. Not just acceptable, but it's what we should look for. Is it any wonder that we get into these relationships and we're like, this guy's a total asshole. Why do I think I like this? Oh, because every single cinematic experience I've ever had says that this is romantic. Like, no. Romantic comedies, shit. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. This is wine, not water and cake. I'm wondering where that came from. I'm not going to argue with that. It's completely true. I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah, I, I really have a very low tolerance for I mean, romantic comedies. Cinema has a lot yeah. of responsibility when it comes to the way that we deal with our fucked up relationships. It's why that you know it helps. <laughs> well, that's a conversation we're going to have another day. But yes. <laughs> Hold on. If you're going to talk, what I'm going to do, I'm give you a mic so it can be heard and also recorded for posterity. <laughs> so it, it helps. It's okay, you I swore. There you go. <laughs> I asked permission first, it's fine. No, it's gone. You got permission to swear, just don't use too much of it. Alright, so, for me, is this working, yeah? Is it working? One, two, one, two. Yep. How now? Knock yourself out. <laughs> so... What I find is whenever she's saying about those, like the rom-com and all the stuff that there is that the thing with pornography, with like when young ones are watching porn, like from probably from about nine, I don't know what age they are, up. Um, I have a son myself who's 19. And what I find is there was, there's been recent documentaries on like Channel 4, etc., like even BBC One and that, um, of young boys that done through, say like from first year, right up to fifth year, and they were like kind of, so what do you see as like a relationship with females, like with young girls and stuff? And they're like, oh yeah, they like to get a doggy stead and do this and do this and do this. Like all what it is in the pornography things, all in those pornos. So, and when they're asking the girls, it's completely different. The girls are like kind of, they just like want to kiss and like maybe going to be cinema date and yeah, they want to be Disney princesses, mm -hmm. do you know? But they're kind of the male, the boys in all these documentaries are like kind of. One of the girls had actually said that um, no, you don't kiss, you just give head. You have blowjobs, oh, you know. That's really that's scary. And this is high. These in, like, I mean, if you search, totally brainwashed. If you what, it's either on Channel Four or else BBC One. But there's been numerous documentaries. It's. I, I think it's. A, Good example, and it, it, it's, it's definitely stuff that we're looking at. What I would say is that I think it falls just slightly maybe outside the realms of what we want to cover, and we have got an event coming up oh. on this topic. Um, yes. So I don't want to kind of spoil all our conversation for that one either. Yeah. So come to that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a surprise, sir. <laughs> but he's been watching porn for his name. <laughs> but it, but it, like it's, it's a... 
Related point, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of what film tells us is normal. So with something like this, it's it's quite obvious from the off that this guy, you know, crazy mustache man is a, as a bad guy and that bad things are going to happen. But when when we use films, I, I think, and I'm not the film person, but I watched an awful lot of them. I was going to be a movie star when I was growing up. That went well. Um, when we use films as our basis for what things should be, what we want things to be, what we aspire to, when they create situations that are not just fantastical, because that's why, we, in, in a large part, I think, why we watch cinema, because it's, it's escapism and it's, you know, it's interesting and it's entertaining, but when they're playing the role of telling you what you should be looking for, what you should be wanting, then they have a lot more of a responsibility. So in a, like, in a way, Gaslight has, has done a very important service, I think, because it's given us a, a metaphor, in a sense, to describe these kinds of abusive relationships. But in a lot of these films that come to mind to me when I'm thinking about these issues, they're not presented that way. They're presented in not only is this normal, but you should want this because that guy's so pretty and he has his shirt off all the time. I, I think part of, I completely agree with what you're saying, and I completely agree with what you're saying as well. Um, it's not just that films are reflecting what we should want, it's that then we feel like we should want it, so that reflects back into what films get made. Um, and just sort of related to what you're saying, and obviously I, you know, I, he's going to tell me off if I start talking about porn now. But, um, it's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah, related to, though, is, is the, the idea that, you know, there's evidence to suggest that porn is getting more violent in response to what people are looking for. And they're looking for it because they're being given it. And that's a really scary idea. And that's normal. That's being normalized. And it's so accessible mm. um, that this idea that it's brutal and violent and, and entirely about what positions you can get your legs into, as I understand it. I don't want to kind of spend too long on, on kind of the porn, on porn stuff because I think it is. <laughs> yes, I think no, it is a separate discussion. It's, and it's it related, but yes, I see. Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, in terms of sort of, uh, it, I think the, the observation, though, that you know there is a mask is something I think that cinema is quite good at revealing to us, and particularly with something like this. I mean, his mask is his whole personality. I mean, he, he assumes an identity and acting itself. I suppose is a mask, it's people pretending to be people, so we shouldn't really be surprised when those people are not the people that they claim to be. Um, that's maybe going a bit deeper than most people look at films. But, um, so the idea that a, of a mask on screen, I think, is, is, is quite a useful tool, and how it's presented and how it's kind of gradually lifted that veil, uh, and that veil of realisation, I guess, as well, for her. I think the thing that really strikes me when we're, when we're talking about gaslighting, and it was so very evident looking at her character there is that that slow um, descent of not being able to trust herself, herself. Mm. Um, and how damaging that is. Um, and this is where I'm going to bring out my controversial idea that I was talking Ooh, yes. to you guys before. <laughs> it's another TED talk coming, guys, get ready. Um, there's um, there's a, like an increasing school of thought out there, a lot of um, articles around talking about how we gaslight our children um, from a very early age. Um, not necessarily intending to, but saying things like, Ugh, you're not really scared. That's not worth being upset over. You're not really hurt. You're being such a drama queen. Would you just cut it out? And you can tell that I've never been told that before in my life. Um, but that... I think is often a mainstream part of parenting when we're trying to, you know, calm somebody down who's having a meltdown in aisle three over crackers that aren't quite big <laughs> enough. Again, not a personal story. Um, and it seems like a really easy go-to to be like, no, you're not, that's not worth getting upset over. Like earlier today, my coat brushed my daughter's face and you'd have thought that like I died because she just completely lost it. And there's part of me that wants to go, oh my God, could you just calm down? This is not a big deal. You do not need to worry about this. But I stopped myself because I got told that a lot as a kid, that I was a drama queen, that I was overreacting, um, that that wasn't worth getting upset over. And what that does over time is tell you that you don't, that what you feel what you perceive a situation to be isn't the way that it is. And that can be not only damaging emotionally, but it lays the groundwork. I mm -hmm. you said this, I'm stealing this. Lays the groundwork for other people to do that to you later in life. Because, well, I am a bit traumatic. I do overreact to things. So I guess I'm overreacting here. He must not have meant it that way. It must be something else. 
it's really damaging, and we do it from such a young age. Why are you so sensitive? Why are you being so sensitive? You always misinterpret things. Yeah. Don't cry. That's going to make me feel bad yeah. if you're crying. Yeah. Don't make me feel bad. I'm getting flashbacks, so this is not as comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I laugh, but it's yeah. true. Um, yeah, we, we program our children, and we program through the stuff that we say to them. We program through the stuff that we sit them in front of the television for. Um, I think Ben at the back will probably shout at you if you st stick his kids down in front of Peppa Pig. All right? <laughs> You're programming them wrong, Ben. Stop it. Peppa is uh, a horrible brat. <laughs> um, but we, we, we do do this, and so then you're more likely, if that's the way you've been taught to, to if you find yourself in a relationship with somebody who uses that language, uh, again, to control you uh, and, and question your own kind of judgment and morals and, and sense and everything else, and it is completely damaging. Absolutely. Um, before we open this up to the floor, do you want to talk about the political side of things a little bit? Just like a little bit. Yeah, bring the American on, ask her about Trump. <laughs> Yeah, no, this guy that nobody's heard of. He's basically a Cheeto in a suit. Um, you can strike that out for legal reasons. It's fine. Um, I don't think you're, that that's particularly contentious at this point. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm, I'm hoping the room can agree upon that. Otherwise, I'm in the wrong place. But you make a tweet um, about us. We'll get 100 more listeners. It's fine. <laughs> yes. Um, so first, talking about Trump, I just want to plug that I have nothing to do with this, but if you guys are interested in both Trump, God help you, and the concept of gaslighting as a political term, you should check out a podcast called Gaslit Nation um, with two journalists called uh, Sarah Kenzior and Andrea Chalupa, and they have been breaking down what's happened in my utter shit show of a country um, since, well, they really start back in 2015 because they've been telling us that this was going to happen for years. Um, but they break down how how Trump and his entire administration basically are gaslighting, not just the entire country, but the world. Um, things like fake news that we talked about, um, but just the, the, the lie upon lie, the, the deception, that things that they don't even bother to prove, um, that they don't even need to. It's just the audacity of the lie, I think was a phrase that they use. Um, and it leads you to a place where, where you don't know what to believe anymore and you don't know what's coming down the pipeline and you're just constantly in the brace position. Um, and it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's writ large and it's very triggering, I think, for a lot of people who have been through gaslighting on, on a personal, intimate level to be seeing it happen writ large. I think in some ways it's almost inevitable, and I'm going to sound so massively authoritarian by saying this, um, it's an almost inevitable um, consequence of the sort of democratization of access to information. There's no gatekeepers really anymore. I mean, the internet kind of broke that down. And yes, it is fantastic to have this source of enormous knowledge that's accessible um, to, to sort of most of the population. But at the same time, um, the, the gatekeepers are what sort of patrolled the, the how that got directed. I mean, I, I am an academic in another part of my life, and if I want to put a paper out for publication, it has to be peer-reviewed. It has to go to um, various different people who have knowledge of the, the subject, who review it and review it, and it'll go to somebody else, and they'll come back to me, and they'll make up... You know, it's, th it's that level of, of, dis of, of oversight and the dissemination of knowledge and, and new understandings and new interrogations of things that kind of ensures that that knowledge is being passed on in a way that is as accurate as possible and accuracy is such a slippery term anyway but it really doesn't need to be as slippery as it is now um, and such there's of course there are huge problems with with the, the press and how they control the information flow and and um, how that gets you know biased and, and partisan but the reputation um, of, of those big news giants used to be something that one could count on to act as a gatekeeper. Now, the Daily Mail has just had, what was that, what's that called? The, the News Accuracy Reporter, and it just got a, a, a surprisingly enough, um, a, a rating of this news site is just terrible, guys. It's terrible. They're constant errors. And they're challenging it. Oh, they've, they've succeeded. 
They succeeded, they no. Succeeded. Yeah, no. Oh, please tell me no. Right, that is the absolute apotheosis of this whole storm of crap that's coming down the internet at us. Because how can they possibly challenge that? And they are repeatedly taken to court. They are repeatedly told that they, are, they have libeled or they have reported. And they, they, it's, it's just part of their operating when model. When you've now. got people like Piers Morgan who you know, lost the editorship of a paper for lying about stories and got found out and now has, you know, a, a, you see him every sodding morning on ITV. If I don't. I up. throw up my cornflakes, but anyway. Yeah, I don't watch that either. Yeah. No, but I mean, the, our, our country and our society is not one that, that sort of um, is happy. I mean, we don't seem to mind. I mean, generally speaking, we have politicians that, you know, the lies that were spread about Brexit, never mind about Trump. Um, you know, we're being sold up the river, left, right, and centre. You know, they do on the news every single day. Any of those kind of more tabloidy kind of features. Um, our newspaper editors, the Sun, is still paying out damages. The Sun company is still paying out damages for the news of the world phone hacking scandals that went on. The North Three settled this week. Well, great. You know, you don't take it to court. You pay a lot of money. Um, it's cheaper it to pay the, the fine than it is to 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 lose the sales that you wouldn't get if you didn't tell the lies in the first but place. But the joy is, with the whenever they settle out of court, the paper gets to say, we accept no liability for what's gone on. So therefore, basically, we didn't do it. Essentially, therefore, vindicating the newspapers, even though you have evidence to say that they did what they did. And our court system works the same way with gaslighters. And I, again, you know, with my personal kind of bugbear coming back onto this, is that there are ways around these things where someone can completely screw you over mentally. And ultimately, if you word things in a certain way and you follow certain legal parameters, whoever it is that does these things to you gets off scot-free with a clear conscience, a clear record, and you're still left to suffer the scars and go through the years of therapy and fucking deal with it. And that would be true of any sexual assault or rape survivor who's been through the court system, yeah. who's been told that what she experienced, that her reality isn't true, that she was probably leading the guy on, that it was her fault, that she brought it on herself. Everything you just described is what people who who actually have the bravery to go through that yep. process experience. And it's disgusting. It's utterly, utterly shameful. That, that for me, is, is the pinnacle of gaslighting. Something traumatic and violent and horrible happens to you. And the next several months are everything around you telling you that it either didn't happen the way that you said, that you wanted it to happen, that you liked it, that it's not bad. That, that is gaslighting. And right then we, we, it extends into social media. So we look on our social media and everyone has an opinion. Like an asshole, we've all got one. And <laughs> so many people carrying up and saying, well, of course it's true. It's like, you know, well, hold on, this doesn't work like this. And who the hell puts themselves through that whole process of the courts just because they're making some shit up? That's a little rant from me. But... <laughs> Um, I do want to kind of get back into so, this. So before we kind of open this up to the floor, um, there's a couple of cases that have come back into the headlines again this week, which fit in with our Me Too Times Up film connection, and that would be Brian Singer and Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, we can say whatever the hell we want about him because he's dead and he can't sue. Don't speak ill of the dead. <laughs> well, I think he's fairly well established that he was a child molester, but we've known about that since, what, the 1990s? Um, but again, you know, you obviously have a situation where family and friends are kind of coming out and they're saying, well, no, these aren't true. And these kids, these children, which they were at the time, settled and kind of said one thing. And years later, they're coming out now. And, and does anyone know about the documentary that's coming out? No. Yes. Okay, so those of you who don't know, there is a new Michael Jackson documentary that includes interviews from two people who previously haven't really talked about the abuse that they claim to have suffered at Michael Jackson's hands as teenagers uh, and young boys. Um, they were previously actually took the stand and gave evidence on Michael Jackson's behalf, again, whenever they were about 13 years of age. Um, and so people have now kind of questioned their credibility, but it was screened, I want to say Sundance, and the feedback at Sundance, it was so bad that they actually had to have counsellors on hand to speak to the audience afterwards, which is something that they... Was that? We're going to ignore that one. Um, counsellors on hand, which is something they haven't done before. Um, it did with the exorcist. They had counsellors on hand to deal with people who are dealing with sexual trauma. That's what I'm asking you. You've just said they did. Okay. Um, so whether whether I'm now fake newsing or not, I'm not entirely sure. My own credibility has been called into question. Um, but it's still a story that's ongoing. Um, thoughts on that? 
or the Singer allegations, which if you haven't read, there's a really good article in The Atlantic. We've tweeted it from our Twitter account, Cinepunked. That, that's just a difficult read, just as a, a heads up to anybody that reads it, the, um, the Brian Singer um, allegations. Um, yeah, read as a, a textbook in, in grooming and exploitation and manipulation. Um, and you know the thing with that happening in the film industry, obviously, as we've been talking about, is the power and prestige that goes with um, success in that industry, which just lends, um, I think, lends itself to people being able to manipulate their position, which it's not that it makes it worse than any other time that it happens. It just, I think, almost makes it easier to cover up, allegedly. Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, a, a crime which leaves the victim voiceless effectively in any situation, but particularly voiceless whenever the, the accused person has such a megaphone to their mouth where they can just shout you down. Well, there's the point where there's, there's a comment that's made within the allegations where a singer is addressed and he basically says, well, you know, no one's ever going to believe you, which again is a kind of classic gaslighting abusive technique is whether you're going to be believed or not. You know, once you're told that no one's going to believe it, you're not going to come forward with whatever it is that you want to come forward with. Um, it is a very difficult read, uh, but I also think it's a very important read. Um, and in terms of sort of stuff we talked about before, how you then go forward in terms of whether or not you can feel comfortable watching the films, that's not a question entirely. Um, I do want to open this up to the floor. Um, so if anyone has any thoughts or comments or questions on any of the gaslighting issues, whether it be the films or whatever else, I'm going to come around with the roaming mic. Um, don't speak until you've got the mic in your hands. What's interesting to me watching this again is I watched this movie as a child. I must have been less than 15 years old. And of course, a lot of the subtleties were lost to me then, as they would be, because I was less than 15 years old and pretty innocent. What fascinates me about this is, is uh, emotional and mental abuse. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what you don't get is physical and sexual abuse, or you don't overtly get physical and sexual abuse. So she actually asks him at one point, it would be better if you beat me up, which is kind of an interesting one when you get into the abuse mentality. But the other bit that's interesting about it is the, the sexual side of it, because looking at this as a mature adult, which I would not have thought when I was 12, 13, whatever I was when I watched it first, God, what is it like getting into bed with this guy? But actually, she doesn't get into bed with this guy because she wants children and hungers for children and hungers probably for the love that a child can give her, and then you're given the dog substitute, the King Charles Spaniel, all that hackneyed shit. But uh, whatever, the other thing he's doing to her is he's not actually um, sexually engaging with her as an adult, and that is actually another form of abuse, which is actually absence of sexual abuse, which, or absence of sex, or whatever romantic love it is. So uh, for me, it was kind of interesting because I've watched it before, but I wouldn't have got all those subtle days. So it's kind of interesting watching it now and thinking, well, what about the other? Because it's very unusual to get emotional, mental abuse purely on its own. But there's a lot of inferred stuff here, which is very interesting. That, that line where she says, it, you know, she's basically saying, I, it would be better if you hit me, um, is just... I, I mean, that's one of the most difficult lines in the piece for me, um, and a piece with a lot of difficult lines, um, because effectively what she's saying is, I can't quantify this. If you hit me, then I know that it's something that's not right, but I, I can't quantify what's happening to me at the moment, and I, I can't put my finger on the fact that it's abusive, and that's fairly classic um, uh, dynamics within um, a, an emotionally abusive relationship like that. Um, it, it's kind of textbook of how we now understand that type of relationship um, and that withholding of affection um, is also, and the way he's able to flip it as well um, when he's being so horribly cruel to her and all of a sudden, bang, turns on a, on a knife edge and suddenly it's like he gives her a kiss on the cheek, would you like to come out with me tonight? And it's all she needs to, to, to sort of reattach and to reinvest in him and he's got her again and it's just so awful to watch. It's a sort of emotional cycle that, that goes through. I mean, she says classical abuse technique. You know, you, you kind of, um, 
you have the hurt and you have the pain and you withdraw everything and then you kind of give them affection again. So it's, you know, it's, it's the love and hate and you kind of live for those little bits of love in amongst months and months of hate. But that little bit makes you feel so good compared to the shit that you'll kind of take that. I would say in terms of the whole sexual side of things, I think they are having a sexual relationship because she does say whenever she's told that they're not married, we've been living together as husband and wife. And in the context of the era that, that film is set, I read that as we are living together as husband and wife. They have been, though. I, I, it sounds to me as though he has been withholding for a while. Mm. Ever since they moved to the house. Yeah. yeah. Can I just um, point out as well that, so it's not just the, you know, the abuse and, and him turning around and doing something lovely to get her to reattach, but the, the part that I thought was very insidious and I think is, is very particular to gaslighting this kind of emotional abuse is him turning around and going, no, you're the one who's torturing me. You're making my life miserable here. You're humiliating me. So not only is he abusing her and torturing her, but he's actually, he's saying, no, you're doing, but that's what you're doing to me. It's as if, you know, it's somebody gaslighting somebody and going, but you're gaslighting me. You know, it's, it's, it's mirroring, is what it is. Yeah, it yeah. Just, you, you kind of throw everything up at, um, you know, whatever you're giving, you just send it back. And where do you go from that? You, you know, it's very, very difficult um, to kind of get out of that situation, as you said, you know, with your alternate truth. Yes. You know, what do you think? I, I, I don't know. Um, there's a couple of people. Uh, yes, so there's one, two, three. I'm going to go to, let's see. I'm going to give you first, then you, madam, and then you, sir, okay? Hi, I'm first time viewer of that, and I was familiar with the themes in it and the sort of you know lineage of the word and everything, almost going backwards from the modern use of it. And uh, this is probably one of the most unsettling films I've ever seen. I was just curious. I, I've gone through something similar myself, not in that sense, but in the loss of credibility sense. Um, I was very ill, was hospitalised, had a sort of dispute with someone, let's say, and you know for months said person was saying a lot of things about me to friends, acquaintances, etc. You know, which I had to subsequently come out and it's sort of like, oh, everyone thinks I'm crazy now. And you're walking on complete eggshells the whole time. The actual question I was going to ask was, I think looking back through sort of modern lens and sensibility at that, you get the impression, um, very much it is domestic abuse, you could say gender politics, all sorts of things. I was wondering, was that the intention at the time or was it sort of a mechanism to sort of frame a villain in the same way that, okay, it's a crude analogy, but you know, you don't really say that Norman Bates is a sort of study about a bad parent, you know? Um, so I was wondering if you think it was sort of uh, something we're reading back or was it actually in the intent of the writer uh, at the time to sort of put those themes in? My understanding is that he kind of, well, it must have been something that was part of the collective consciousness, but there wasn't any intention to kind of dramatize a specific form of emotional manipulation. It was a device that he wanted to use to tell the story. I mean, the, the stage play that it's based on, um, there's actually relatively little of the actual gaslighting that's in there. The focus is very much on the, the crime. It's, it's uh, Jack Manningham in the original play that Jack Manningham has, has committed. So it's, and, and Inspector Ruff, his focus is very much on getting to the bottom of the crime. So it's like a little sort of snippet out of what the, it becomes you know, in the overall film. So to, uh, to my understanding, and Robert, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, because I know you have a, a sort of a better s historical knowledge of this, but they sort of happened upon defining a particular type of abuse that hadn't necessarily been defined. It's an old one. I mean, it, it, it fits in with other stuff that's going on. I mean, essentially, she's a heroine trapped in a castle. And you've got a hero who comes along and saves the day. I mean, that's a trope as old as time. It's made Marion, you know, if you think about that, and the Sheriff of Nottingham, essentially. Um, so I don't think it's anything necessarily particularly original, but I do think that maybe he was someone who has a bit more of a social conscience. Um, and there are writers who are working and they are making us very aware about the behaviour that's geared towards women and how unacceptable it is. And Hitchcock is actually a really good example of this. His women are tortured and we're certainly not left to think that, yeah, it's a good idea to torture these women. You know, we're left to kind of feel sympathy and empathy for them and, and to appreciate their plight. Um, so I don't know. I don't, 
necessarily know for sure. Um, we haven't got a lot of time, so I want to make sure we cram in these other couple as well. So if you just want to pass the mic forward to the lady in front of you. Yep. And then I'm going to get it off her and take it to the back. Um, just picking up on what this lady back here said about there being no sexual or physical abuse, I would argue that there is sexual and physical abuse and that he's in charge of her body and he tells her where she can be and he tells her to go to her room and she gets locked in there and she's not allowed to go out. To me, that would be physical abuse. And if someone, if I married someone on the pretense that they were this person and I had sex with them and then I found out that they had lied and they were a completely different person, I would consider that as sexual abuse. So I do think that those abuses are also in the film as well. And that's interesting though as well because the, the, a lot of the things that you point out in terms of him telling her where she can go and, and what she can do and who, who she can speak to, I don't know if you noticed, but at the, at the very beginning, towards the beginning of the film when they were in the church service and they were coming out and you, know, you hear little bits of people kind of gossiping, who are these people? And there was a woman who said, oh, they're so-and-so, I thought we could call on them. And her husband says, no, that wouldn't be proper for whatever antiquated etiquette, blah, 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 blah. And she goes, no, but, and he said, I said no. And so actually, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. What I'm trying to do is um, contextualize it even more to, to say that actually, in my opinion, a lot of the marriages, the relationships that we see between men and women in that time period now, for a lot of time um, leading up to then, at their base are abusive because of the power dynamics in which they are constructed. And, that, and that's why watching that, as I said before, for me, the time period was just such a slap in the face because it was realizing that there's nowhere for her to go. Even at the end when she gets out, like as Rachel said, like what's gonna happen to her now? She was with another man, she was married, like that's her, she's done. You know, so that, it is abusive because marriages were by and large abusive then. Well, you know her reputation is tarred forever as a result of this, that they are gonna gossip. I mean, in the 44 version in particular, the, the woman who basically is at the start, who kind of wants to go in and visit them, there's a character who basically visits repeatedly, trying to get into the house to kind of see because she's really curious and she wants to know about the murders and she's fascinated by this, a really kind of macabre obsession. Um, and you know that that would then become part of that narrative and part of that gossip. There's the woman at number 12, you know, she is, she lives there. She was married to him, you know, and, and... But she wasn't really married to him. Yeah, I mean, that's her reputation. Done. Yeah. And this is a, a Victorian yeah. thing, but it's also, you kind of see that contrast with the morality of the maid who really doesn't care. You know, she's quite a progressive, and, and I think what we would now see is quite a progressive character in some ways. She's using her sexuality as her power control. And that's kind of set against um, against the lady of the house. So obviously, you know, we, we're, we are aware that the morality of the time isn't as black and white as we sometimes like to pigeonhole it in. Um, sorry, you had your hand up as well. Hi. So initially, you kind of touched on the concept that, say, if this is happening today, there's better mechanisms for someone like her to get out of it. But really, well, even though in the film, there was times where she sort of said, oh, you're doing this to me, you're being so awful. But really, from what I could tell, the crux of gaslighting, which comes from the, the play and the specific films, is that idea of him manipulating her, making her think she's mad, without her knowing that that's what he's doing, without her knowing, I'm trying to make you think you're crazy. Because even you could see in the film, those moments where she said, this is me, I'm mad, I'm doing this to myself. And I think it's that sort of thing that even if that's modern day, People can't fight back because they have no idea that's what's being done to them. And even if that was a relationship today, there's no way of, there's no legal mechanisms or social mechanisms to fight back because you don't know they're manipulating you and the risk going down the political rabbit hole. But that's again what's happening today of things like in Brexit and stuff, people being made to think, oh, it's okay to have these views on immigration. You're not being racist because that's what we're thinking, making you think, et cetera, et cetera. And I think really the essence of gaslighting is to make someone think something, they're, they're mad or they have this opinion without them knowing that you're making them think that. And I think it really comes down to more so that there than that sort of overt um, abuse that did occur. Really, that was happening separately. That the abuse that she can recognize is completely separate to the actual gaslighting abuse. Because the gaslighting, as it would be known now, or people think of it, is more to abuse someone without them actually knowing that's yeah. what you're doing. And that's, oh, that's sorry. sorry. No, go ahead. Um, no, I was just going to say, yes, you're absolutely right, and, and thank you for making that point, and mm -hmm. I certainly was not trying to suggest that if you were being abused that way now that you could just, you know, waltz out of your house. I would 
never it's, minimize yeah. um, any kind of abuse or say things like, why didn't she leave? So that's a really important point to make. Um, and and why why it is so such an insidious form of abuse and why I was talking about the way that we speak to children because it is at its essence about getting you to think that your perception of reality is not real, that you can't trust it, that you don't really know what's going on. Because I, I, for me, that's what, that's what you're talking about. And that's why it can be applied to anything from parental relationships to intimate partners to political situations. It is getting people to not trust what they feel, what they think, what they can see. And it is a very invisible process and they don't know what's happening. And that's why it's so incredibly frightening. Just completely coincidentally, today I happened to read an article about a woman who um, was talking about her previous relationship where she had been hoping that he would propose um, and instead he broke up with her and she went absolutely in bits to her friends and her friend's reaction was thank God for that um, and, and proceeded to list all the things that she couldn't list while they were together like the time she they were going out to a fancy do and she came in and found her friend scrubbing um, the cooker in her ball gown because he always tells me I don't know how to clean the cooker properly and you know if he wasn't looking after me we'd be living in an absolute like pigsty and just and, and the more I was reading it the more I was going I can see exactly how this happened um, and I can see exactly how it was invisible to her because it starts small with the little tiny comments and it builds up and it builds up and the more you're prepared to go actually it's probably just me I am a bit oversensitive I probably did react to that the wrong way um, he's absolutely right I don't clean the dishes all all the time the way I should do maybe I should you know maybe I really do require him to look after me otherwise we'd be living and shit um, and that four years four years she was in that relationship and she wanted to marry him because she couldn't see what was going on and it's only with the benefit of hindsight and that's why that line in the film if only he'd hit me resonates so powerfully because that's without in any way wanting to minimize the, the damage that physical violence does to, to one's sense of self it's something that you can look at and go actually that is wrong, that shouldn't be happening. Whereas this is making you question your own sense of reality um, and how do you fight back against that when it's so malleable? I think one of the the key kind of tools that's used there as well is the isolation. Um, she is gradually cut off from her world, from her family, from her friends, from even the square, which is itself quite a claustrophobic space. That's all she's gone out in, and she's not even allowed to circle in that. I think the same thing is true of a lot of kind of people that you cut people off from either other points of view. Actually, that's basically what it is. I mean, that's how it works best. If you cut people off from other points of view, so if you're on social media and you only listen to one side of an argument and you never hear the alternative, well, that is effectively shutting you off from another perspective that might help you. Not being able to see your friends, not being able to contact your family, you know, that example you use, it's a great way of kind of saying, so right, here's this thing. If you're never given that chance to have that conversation, then that can perpetuate and, and perpetuate and, and just get worse and worse. But no benchmark but your own perception of reality and that's, you're being told you can't trust that. Yeah. What I would say, um, I mean, we're going to have to wrap this up, but what I would say is that should you find yourself in a situation and you are questioning it, that you wonder, you know, am I being gaslit? Um, I think the fact that you're wondering it is probably an indication that you might be. Um, there is help out there. There are people you can go to. And if you can't even talk to your family and friends, um, the, well, in this country, it's the PSNI. They do have domestic support people that are there and they can work to an extent. They don't work for everybody, but they do work. Victim support is there. Um, we're an organization that I find very useful. Um, and there are plenty of other organizations, organizations as well. But talk to somebody, talk to friends, family members, even work. Women's Aid has a domestic violence helpline. Um, for anybody that may be interested in learning about that. Yeah. Um, we've got some leaflets over there. We'll stick something up on the website as well with a sort of choice of different people. But um, there is stuff out there for people. It's not, it is difficult to escape from, but it's not impossible. Um, and it is a very real situation, you know, that, that people go through. And I know even I think if we just think about how we talk to other people who kind of just don't seem right in situations like that, maybe don't dismiss their concerns. It's probably a good lesson to take. Stop telling people they're being too sensitive. 
Yeah. No, I actually mean that seriously. I, I genu- I'm not trying to be flippant there. I think that that as an as an aside from the actual conversation around abuse, I think that trying to be a little more empathetic, as you say, in our everyday interactions and, and thinking that maybe just because you're not experiencing something in the same way that somebody else is doesn't make their experience wrong. Um, and that listening more and judging less can be helpful sometimes. Hmm. And if you are a gaslighter and you know you're a gaslighter, <laughs> you're a fucker. <laughs> Quite simple. And you will get called out eventually. <laughs> and thankfully we now have laws about some of this stuff as well. I can't wait to see them enforced. Um, so, folks, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Rachel, Liz, Ben, and the Crescent Arts team. The audio you've just heard was recorded live by Ben Simpson at the Crescent Arts Centre Belfast in February 2019 and featured Robert J.E. Simpson, Dr. Rachel Kelly, Liz Nelson, and anonymous contributions from the audience. You can find out more about Cinepunk via our website, cinepunk.com, or our social profiles on Twitter and Facebook, where we're on Cinepunk, and Instagram, where we're Cinepunk Film. The podcast is available to subscribe via all good podcast distributors. Thank you for listening.